Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's live broadcast. Pharmaceutical Executive presents the 2021 Emerging Pharma Leader Winners. I'm Lisa Henderson, the Editorial Director of Pharmaceutical Executive. We have a couple of housekeeping items before we begin. You can enlarge your slide window by clicking on the small square icon in the upper right-hand corner of the slide window or by hovering your mouse over the lower right-hand corner and dragging the window to the desired size. The slides will advance automatically during the event. If you have any technical problems viewing or hearing this presentation, please click on the question mark help widget in the dock at the bottom of your presentation window. So very exciting day for us, but before we actually get to announcing this year's winners, which each of the editors will announce, uh, we thought we'd like to give you a little background on how the Emerging Pharma Leaders process works. So Andy Studna, our assistant editor, handles that process. So Andy, over to you. Thank you, Lisa. Our process to get everything started begins even before January with setting up the actual entry website. Everything needs to get updated to the current year, including some language changes to entry criteria, as you can see displayed on your screen right now. We opened up the site for entries on January 26th and closed the window on March the 1st. We received over 100 entries during that time period, and the most difficult part was definitely narrowing it down to the 13 winners. This is where our editorial team comes in in terms of narrowing down some of the field and blinding the entry forms. We read over all of them and adjust the wording to make them completely anonymous. Then our panel of four judges comes in to score the blinded forms based on the criteria which is displayed on your screen. As you can see, there are four categories, each weighted evenly with an opportunity for judges to score them one through five. The judges then had 10 days to finalize their feedback, concluding on March 12th. Shortly after, our editorial team confirmed the highest scores and we had our EPL class of 2021. Now I'd like to introduce Bob Jansen, founder and CEO of Zensites, pharmaceutical executive editorial board member, and one of the four judges for this year's event to speak on this year's crop of nominations and how they reflect recent changes in the pharma and biotech industries. Andy, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure to be a participant on the Pharmaceutical Executive Advisory Board um, for over a decade now. And I've been very, very honored to have been part of the selection of the emerging pharma leaders over that time period. What's amazing to me is the evolution of Pharmaceutical Executive, the magazine, from, a, from all print to now a portion of print, but really mostly online now. And what's even more interesting is that it used to be a pharmaceutical manufacturer only type uh, medium. And now it's much more diversified with significant um, readership in the, the biospace as well. And what's really interesting from my perspective is that going back a decade or so, when we got the submissions for the emerging pharma leaders, they were vastly coming from the traditional commercial lens. Folks that had carried a bag, had gone in and done marketing, maybe a finance or legal rotation, um, HR rotations, et cetera. And they were taking what I consider a traditional um, trajectory to get to the C-suite. Today, you know, especially in this last round, there were we were over-indexed for folks with a scientific uh, background, physicians and scientists that have uh, founded companies and have done uh, discovery 
to, to better patients' lives. And they are the, the future of the C-suite, albeit maybe in, it, in the smaller emerging companies. So I was pleasantly surprised to see when we ended up with the 13 folks, seven of them actually came out of the scientific physician community and six followed the traditional commercial path. Uh, as an example of that, uh, Michael Henderson started Pell Pharma while he was at medical school at Stanford at the ripe old age of 22. So you want to talk about an overachiever and somebody that's, uh, you know, pretty amazing. Uh, Michael really is a great example of that scientific community and what's happening and who are developing drugs and bringing them um, to the forefront and who are our emerging pharma leaders. On the traditional commercial perspective, you've got somebody like Carla Pearson, who started her career in finance, then moved into the, a marketing role, then went out to the field in a sales management role, then came back in-house into a strategy role, and now is running a huge uh, multi-billion brand globally. That is what I would consider a, a traditional trajectory into commercial. And we've got six folks that follow that path that we believe are going to be amazing uh, C-suite leaders uh, going forward. So, you know, very, very excited uh, to share this group of 13 with you. And hopefully, you know, our the future of the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry are in great hands with these adaptive, strong leaders. Um, you know, turn it over to you, Julian. Okay, thanks, Bob, for your insights there. I'm Julian Upton, PharmExec's European Editor. Uh, and I'd like to introduce our first set of emerging pharma leaders. They are Sally Alain, Simba Gill, William B.J. Jones, and Tasha Robinson. So the question we put to this group was, how has COVID-19 impacted your approach to leadership? And here's what they had to say. I think COVID-19 has brought us back to a reminder of being empathetic, being empathetic uh, to the people that we work with, uh, to the teams that we lead. Um, and when it comes to uh, working within Johnson Johnson Innovation, um, being empathetic to recognizing our patients are waiting, our consumers are looking for solutions. Um, and, you know, really, trying to understand um, the position people are coming from, um, the challenges that they're going through, um, and just taking a pause and, and thinking about that as they move forward in making decisions. It's amplified my view on the things that I think are critical for leadership. Um, so I don't think it's actually fundamentally changed my view. Uh, it's, it's basically just reinforced things that I've always been a big believer in. One of them, by the way, is uh, that we're all interconnected in the world. Um, a second one, I've been criticized mo most of my career for, um, for uh, always uh, being on a plane. Um, and I've spent my whole career leading remotely. And I spent most of my career being told that's a bad thing and I need to be in headquarters. I'm delighted that COVID has actually confirmed um, to the world that it is perfectly possible to lead um, from uh, remote distance. Now, one, if one is doing that, what COVID has taught us is that one needs to go out of the way to connect 
in non-physical ways, and there's lots of ways to do that. Um, so I think that's a massive positive that COVID is going to give us all much more flexibility, uh, and much more adaptability around how we work, how we lead. Um, it's a way I've always led and it's a way I've always believed one can lead. Um, and so I'm actually, that's one of the, the positive outcomes of COVID. Uh, I've now got a data-driven confirmation of the hypothesis I've always had. Um, I think um, the other thing that's great about COVID, again, something I've always believed is that Sorry, it's nothing great about COVID, it's wrong terminology, but um, uh, but it's really demonstrated what can be done with sense of urgency um, and determination in a remarkably short period of time. And it's demonstrated how important biotech and science is uh, to the world. Um, and one of the other huge things, actually, in terms of sort of thinking about leadership is just always thinking big. And, um, you know, again, I'm super happy about uh, the success of Moderna and the impact Moderna's had. Uh, which is you know another one of our sister flagship companies, but uh, uh, you know everybody loves Moderna now. But for many 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 years, everybody was very much against Moderna. Not everybody, most people were, and you know people didn't really believe it was possible to do what they have now done. So I think that's a great positive lesson. Um, uh, is you know think big, believe that you can do the impossible, and it is possible. Actually, you know our job is to make the impossible real and to bring the future towards us on an accelerated time frame. Uh, that's what great biotech and entrepreneurial companies have the ability to do. And I think COVID's shown that it's possible. So I think there's a great uh, role model uh, set of things. And then, yeah, I just already talked about, we already had it as, as key. Um, compassion, kindness, caring. It's so important. You know, I've, I've always considered myself to be a principled servant leader. And that's one who sets a high bar for myself and my team while doing all I can to clear a path for the team's collective success. And since the early part of my career as an officer in the Air Force and throughout the leadership positions I've held in the pharma industry, I believe fully that great leaders are the ones that empower those in their charge. In my mind, effective leadership creates an optimal balance between empowerment and accountability, which really go hand in hand. And I certainly learned from my own mistakes over the years, as well as witnessing the imbalance other leaders have made over indexing on empowerment with no true accountability for results, or perhaps worse yet, plenty of accountability for employees who actually experience no freedom in decision-making. And I learned this fundamental principle in the military and have really tried to employ this balanced approach to leadership ever since. And I worked extra hard to stay true to those principles during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, looking back over the past year, COVID didn't dramatically alter my leadership style, but where I flexed the most was in creating an environment where empathy, patience, and teamwork were more important than ever. During the pandemic, I've tried to, to be exceptionally sensitive and understanding of my team on a professional and personal level. I've tried to treat everyone on the team fairly, but really most importantly, differently during these challenging times, which meant recognizing and acknowledging that every individual was going through significant and transformational change in their own lives. And that manifested in addressing physical, mental, and spiritual challenges, and it played out in their homes, on the job, or both. You know, I keep in touch with many executives throughout the industry and try to compare notes often on strategies and best practices about leading through the 
business and personnel challenges of COVID-19. And these conversations have only reinforced my appreciation for the unique culture that exists here at Biohaven. Our leadership team believes in innovation to our core, and we highly value the contribution of every employee. And that approach welcomes new ideas and out-of-the-box thinking, which has been instrumental in our success in 2020. We were tested in extraordinary ways last year as individuals and as a team. And Biohaven's environment of teamwork and collaboration really allowed us to pass those tests with flying colors despite COVID. And as a commercial team, our attention in 2020 was singularly focused on the successful launch of Nurtec ODT, which is Biohaven's breakthrough acute treatment for migraine. Little did we know going into the year, of course, that the launch would take place into the once in a century headwinds of a global pandemic. And this kept everyone on our team up at night for months, as you can imagine. But we leaned on each other as never before to navigate through the unprecedented times and still over deliver on our business goals. And my leadership team exhibited incredible resilience, innovation, and a determination to succeed that surprised even me day in and day out. And I could not be more proud of each and every one of them. So as a leader in COVID-19, I did my best to support my people and give them extra grace because you never knew what insurmountable challenge they overcame that morning before the very first Zoom call of the day. And it was critical that people felt valued and supported when times were at their toughest. Again, I'm so proud of my collective team and what we achieved over the past year. They showed their best each and every day. They also brought out the best in me too. And as a leader, I couldn't have asked for anything more. It's a great feeling. You know, I think 2020 was certainly and has certainly been uh, an interesting year. I will say a couple of things. I don't know that it necessarily changed my approach to leadership, but it has certainly allowed me to be able to operate a little differently as I approach and, and my shaping of leadership, specifically within my professional life, but also within my personal life. So one of the unique things about Johnson & Johnson, after all of the social injustice and the self-reckoning, I think, as a, a nation we had last year actually occurred, you know, our, our CEO, Alex Gorski, denounced racism and really had a pretty clear just ability to come out and speak out and to show that as an organization, Johnson & Johnson really wants to separate ourselves in the sense that not only do we denounce it, but we're also going to do something about it. From my perspective, again, the approach, my approach to leadership has stayed the same. I have been able to shape my approach a little bit differently by focusing on things that may not have been as relevant or as sought after by leadership in previous years. And so what I mean by that is you know, oftentimes we talk about the pandemic, but we also know that the reality is there's also been a double pandemic if we look at social determinants of health and how COVID has really accelerated a lot of the challenges that folks were having even before COVID, but COVID just really put that accelerant and that fuel to the fire to really show disparate gaps for different populations as it relates to healthcare. And, and again, all those different social determinants of health. So for me, the opportunity has really come organizationally as we began to focus on it. We've devoted $100 million to the Race for Health Equity, which allows me to really marry my 
professional, but also personal passion, because the reality is the business of healthcare, this is all impacted by that double pandemic. Internally, what we've been able to do is to really start to focus on healthcare disparities from an organizational standpoint. You know, I brought this to my leadership a couple of years ago, and the reality is we didn't have as much to do or as much to, as much of a focus. And really it was nobody's fault that we have kind of an embarrassment of riches, but the reality is we didn't know organizationally where we wanted to go. Uh, however, now I can definitely say with confidence that we have that direction. And for me, it's the opportunity to be a part of that. So I'm currently working, working with our leadership on, you know, how can we affect healthcare disparities? How can we improve equities in health? DE&I, we know, is huge for every organization. So that equity in health is a very personal passion of mine as well. More, and as we look at diversity and inclusion, again, I, I read a quote where diversity is being invited to the dance, inclusion is being able to actually dance, right? So being able to leverage and to realize that, again, it was just an awesome opportunity, I think, to expose some of the challenges that we were having from a societal standpoint. But being able to take a step back and say, hey, listen, it's okay to highlight the fact that we have a lesser percentage of African-Americans at certain levels of leadership, a lesser percentage of Latino Americans with certain levels of leadership. The question is then, how do we focus on that? So we really had a heightened focus on diversity and also that inclusion where people feel that they can come to work and bring their whole self to work. And I think that's a, another important factor. We have an amazing culture, but the reality is no one wants to go to work and have to be someone that they're not. And that has truly allowed me just from a personal standpoint and professional to really shape the way that I'm approaching the business and I'm approaching leadership within my peers and, and with you know, direct reports uh, moving forward. So it's just been an awesome opportunity Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, we have blessings in disguise. And I think that for us, you know, the saying that hindsight is 2020, I think for us, 2020 really became that year that exposed, but also gave opportunity. And the question is, for me, as I approach my leadership, what are we going to do about it, right? The question is, we know what's there. We know what the issues are. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And I'm happy to, to say that we're actually doing something about that now. Okay, so now I'd like to pass you over to our senior editor, Elaine Quilici. Thanks, Julian. Our next set of emerging pharma leaders answered the question, what does a next-generation biopharma company look like? And those winners are Karen Akinsanya, John Hochman, Lukasz Yarzina, Kirsten Kester, and Karsten Linneman. Let's hear from them now. I think the next-generation biopharma company is one that embraces technology all the way from uh, target identification, understanding pathophysiology, embraces genomics, um, high throughput proteomics, and then uses those insights to really inform how we discover and develop drugs, um, and also incorporates uh, patient uh, data from existing patients, existing drugs in our search for new mechanisms uh, that the, the industry can pursue. I think a next generation biopharma company is going to look uh, much more nimble and probably virtual than what has uh, people think of as a pharma company in the past. I think a next generation biopharma company will uh, be addressing a lot of uh, rare uh, orphan diseases, niche problems that uh, large pharma companies may have overlooked or maybe outside of their technical expertise. And I hope that 
in the future, the, the cost of uh, experimentation and uh, the cost of, of clinical research uh, comes down to the degree that there can be much wider participation and much wider investigation of uh, the problems facing the world in, in these next generation biopharma companies. When I think of the, the biopharma companies, what are they going to look like? I think that you know, biopharma companies now and in the future have a responsibility to be good global citizens and leading with a conscience, increased transparency and a focus on health equity throughout all stages of development and commercialization are going to be the norm and not the exception going forward. I believe that next generation of successful biopharma companies will have a few things in common. First, successful next generation biopharma will move away from just bringing innovative medicines to patients to bringing innovative solutions to patients and healthcare systems. And this is a trend that we are already observing today across the industry. Companies are shifting to be problem solvers more broadly and thinking about things like using digital solutions to engage with HCPs, patients, and other stakeholders. For example, last year, the pandemic accelerated our efforts at election to increase virtual patient monitoring and data collection options in clinical trials. This ties into health equity too. We are committed to building on the learning from this past year to make our clinical trials more accessible and to reach a broader, more diverse pool of potential patients. Artificial intelligence will also be at the forefront of innovative solutions in biopharma. While many associate AI with the discovery of new molecules, in our industry, AI can also support such efforts like early diagnosis. And especially for people with rare diseases, it can often take years to receive an accurate diagnosis, and many never receive one at all. Alexion has collaborated with leading children's hospitals and data science companies to develop tools designed to deliver actionable data to physicians by analyzing phenotypic and genomic data and incorporating precision software, medical information, and clinical insights in order to shorten the diagnostic journey for children with rare diseases. And throughout all of this, the common thread is that the patient has to be at the forefront of every decision. A lot of companies talk about patient centricity, but it has to be more than just talk. It has to be in your culture. And at Alexion, people living with rare and devastating diseases are our guiding star. We believe it is our responsibility to listen to, understand, and change the lives of patients and those who work tirelessly to help them. In addition to the efforts I have already mentioned, we've also tailored our commercial model specifically to rare diseases by offering patient-centered access solutions that bring innovation beyond medicines. Another key factor for the future is that the timeline for the development of medicines is accelerating, and I don't think it's going to slow back down. It is partly a function of COVID over the past year, but taking a look at a longer time period. Now, for example, I still remember when I joined the industry, it took over 10 years on average to get a new medicine through the clinical development process. Now it is much faster. While our development cycle remains longer than other industries, the fact is that it is getting faster and it is very encouraging because it means that we have more potential to bring more innovation to patients faster. But with that accelerated speed, companies have to have the agility and the ability to quickly pivot based on the data, whether it be it clinical data or simply by better taking into account the voices of patients, clinicians, regulators, payer or policymakers. Biopharma companies that do this well will be able to break down the usual silos, bring all stakeholders' voices to the forefront of enterprise decisions, 
and be successful in bringing innovative solutions to patients and healthcare systems. So I think that a next generation biopharma company continues to pursue innovative science to treat serious diseases where there's real unmet medical, medical need. But what distinguishes a next-gen company from the past or present generation is how they do it. And so I think specifically three things that set them apart. One is that they make data technology and their security central to their strategy. So whether it's evaluating how to incorporate AI or machine learning or virtual visits into their R&D or clinical trials, to elevating the IT department beyond a support function to a strategic function. Um, likewise, I think, especially in the case of cell and gene therapy, they prioritize manufacturing from day one to ensure that their paradigm is leaner, flexible, cost-efficient, and greener. And they generally value manufacturing you know, not just as a, as a must-have or a means to an end, but as a, an opportunity to differentiate themselves. And then lastly, I think next-gen companies are serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's not just in recruiting in the workforce, which I think are the ways we typically talk about it, but in all aspects of the company's operations. So that could be at the C-suite and the board level, that could be in the selection of vendors and partners, but it's also in our clinical trial design and recruitment and making sure that therapies are being studied and, and benefiting the biggest uh, market possible. So it's not just about the social and eth ethical element, although certainly that's important, but it's also good business. And uh, I think the, the smartest and most forward-looking companies are, are reaching for it. So I, I believe the face of the next generation biopharma company will be uh, shaped by uh, two fundamental developments, which I think really have been already visible for the past couple of years, but have been tremendously catalyzed by the recent COVID-19 pandemic. So the first one is that I think there will be an acceleration of innovation. The incredible speed with which highly effective vaccines have been provided against the, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine uh, virus has demonstrated the tremendous potential what the industry can deliver when it comes to <clears throat> areas of medical need. I think that has also moved the whole industry into the spotlight of society and the broader investment community. So I really think the ambition of any next generation biopharma company should be to develop other innovation with similar conviction. And I think that will include that innovation will increasingly internalize by biopharma companies at a very early stage. And I think these companies will provide an impeccable environment to accelerate the development of, of such innovation. I think the second aspect of this is the next generation biopharma company will also be a truly global one. I think the speed with which we all have adopted novel communication technologies of the past year has been astonishing and it has forced me personally, but I believe probably also the broader industry to assess what work truly has to be done on site in a facility versus which tasks can be remote, uh, remotely fulfilled in a very efficient way. 
and the realization how efficiently a team can work together remotely uh, has been a true learning experience for me personally. I continue to believe that a cohesive team continues uh, to require meaningful face-to-face -face time. But I think what we will see is that next generation biopharma companies will start utilizing teams in different locations globally in order to leverage regional network, regional talent pools, and also regional infrastructures. Now I'd like to pass it over to our assistant editor, Miranda Schmalfus. Miranda, over to you. Thanks, Elaine. Our final group of emerging pharma leaders include Daniel Getz, Michael Henderson, Donna Hunt-Hodge, and Carla Pearson. They share their thoughts on this final question. Is it important for emerging leaders to challenge the status quo? Why or why not? So, of course it is. I think the world looks to our industry for guidance. I think this has been exemplified in the last 12 to 15 months. The globe saw its biggest threat in over 100 years to humanity, uh, and it was through forward-looking folks at companies like Moderna, Pfizer, J&J, &J, and others that put us in a position to solve, or at least partially solve, the problem we face. And so I think if we're not always challenging the status quo, we will be caught flat-footed and we can't come up with those solutions. And I think, you know, what we're doing at Milo Therapeutics as another example it hasn't been done before, but if you look at the science uh, and what others have done, all the science points to the ability that, you know, this should really revolutionize and transform what we're doing for cancer patients. Uh, and so I think we have a responsibility when we sit where we sit to be challenging the status quo. And, you know, it's, it's truly a responsibility is how I see it. Incredibly important. Oh my God. Like pharma is a, you know, pharma historically has not been the most, you know, things take forever and they're incredibly expensive. And I think that the only way that we change that and do better is by challenging the status quo and pushing for more innovation. Um, right. So it's critical that emerging leaders challenge status quo. And I find it hard to imagine um, an effective and effective and inspiring leader that doesn't do that. Right. That kind of just <laughs> rubber stamps things. Um, Right. There are so many well-established leaders in our industry. I mean, every other who, you know, are interested in preserving the status quo, but they're not the most effective ones by any means. So it's up to, you know, the, I think a, a large onus is on the next generation of leaders to always keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Otherwise, I, I don't know how we deliver on our promise of um, delivering more meaningful medicines for the patients that we seek to serve. And that's what I love about, you know, Bridge Bio. We, we're built to challenge the status quo, right? Our kind of um, portfolio approach and holding company structure model is meant to improve upon the, you know, uh, the standard way of doing things. Um, and I think that, you know, hopefully so far, um, uh, we're starting to show people that you can do it in, in a more efficient and effective manner um, while scaling more quickly. And I hope that there are many, many more bridge bios <laughs> Um, in the future. Yes, I, I think for every leader, emerging leader, every leader should always challenge the status quo. It's important because that's how you see change and that's how you see innovation, right? And so I've, I've even challenged the status quo within my own career, right? Just taking different, unique, brave moves in my career and just trying to get different opportunities, right? And so I think when we don't challenge it, that stifles the organization, right? That doesn't lend to change, 
It doesn't help with innovation. It doesn't help for advancement for patients and et cetera. So I think it's very important for us to, to challenge it. In order to remain competitive in today's rapidly changing environment, emerging leaders must challenge the status quo. I heard a saying years ago that says, marry the mission, but date the strategy. Leaders need to be committed to the organization's purpose, the why, however, continually assess the relevance of the strategy, the how. I believe challenge is the birthplace of change. Challenging the status quo requires courage and the ability to effectively challenge an idea and not the person or people. People make a new idea a reality. So changes need to be mission-centric and people need to connect how the new way is faster, better, or cheaper. As the industry shifts to more targeted therapies, the ability to engage and activate a diverse patient population is business critical. Hence, emerging leaders must ensure the mission extends to the changing customer face and challenge strategies to ensure diversity throughout the value chain. It is as imperative that our challenger mindset extend into the communities we serve, whereby emerging leaders must support policies that promote the elimination of healthcare disparities along with social and economic equity. Because the healthcare consumer of yesterday is different from today and even more different from the consumer of tomorrow. And now we will conclude our webcast with this final word from our managing editor, Mike Christel. Mike? Thanks, Miranda. As you can see, we have an extremely talented and thoughtful group of emerging leaders for the class of 2021. To read more about each of their career progression, please visit www.farmexec.com backslash EPL 2021. This concludes our webcast. We thank you for attending. You will receive an email alerting you to when this webcast will be available for replay. We invite you to forward that announcement to your colleagues who may have missed today's live event. Thanks to all for joining. We will see you next time. Goodbye.